BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. In our times on its annual break, and we'll be back on the 19th of September. Until then, we're offering a podcast each Thursday, chosen from our archive of more than 850 editions, which I hope you'll enjoy. For news of our next season, you can follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. Have a good summer. Hello. If you could hear bats flying at night, they would deafen us. They make louder sounds than almost any animal, equivalent to a pneumatic drill or jet engine, but at higher frequencies than we can detect, thankfully. Many bats use echoes from the sounds they make to locate their prey and avoid obstacles in the dark. Dolphins and toothed whales, they too do that, and the techniques being found are being found in more and more animals. It's so sensitive, it's been likened to hearing in colour. Natural historians have had suspicions that bats were echolocating since the 18th century, but it wasn't so far. But it was so far outside human experience that even into the 20th century, anyone advancing the theory had to contend with ridicule from other scientists. With me to discuss echolocation are Kate Jones, Professor of Ecology and Biodiversity, University College, University College London. Gareth Jones, Professor of Biological Sciences at the University of Bristol, and Dean Waters, Lecturer in the Environmental Department at the University of York. Dean Waters, who first suggested that bats might have this skill? Well, well for that we have to go back to, to 1793 uh, and an Italian priest, Lassero Spallanzani. And Spallanzani, uh, he had a pet owl, which sort of predates Harry Potter by some considerable margin. But um, Spallanzani noticed that when... Uh, the candle was blown out, his owl just blundered into the walls. And he thought, well, owls probably need vision and light to be able to, to navigate at night. But he also observed bats, and he found that, that bats, even in complete darkness, could still um, orientate and navigate. So he was sort of interested in how, how bats got around without using vision. He did all sorts of experiments by, by covering up their eyes with, uh, with little cloths and so on, but he still found that they could find their way around, navigate very accurately. They would come back having had a good meal after, after being out at night. So um, to, in a sort of spirit of experimentation, he did something which is rather gruesome. So, so if anybody's perhaps of a sensitive disposition, they, they might want to kind of listen uh, away. Go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he blinded some bats. And he found that the bats which were, were blind could still navigate and uh, uh, find their way around. So he knew then that, that vision wasn't necessary for bats. And at the same time, uh, a chap in Geneva called Charles Jurine was also doing some experiments, but he was plugging the ears of bats with, with wax. And he found that if you plugged a bat's ears, then it just bumped into things. So Jurine knew then that... Uh, it was the ears that were were necessary for, for bats to navigate. Spallanzani originally was, was fairly sceptical once he'd heard about Shireen's findings, and uh, but he repeated the experiments and found if you plug bats' ears, then they can't, uh, they can't navigate, so hearing was necessary. So this, these two men w were on the track, they're on the trail then, but it took about almost in, until the 1930s for this to be taken of it anywhere with, that persons like yourselves could take seriously. Well, well it did. I, uh, uh, the famous uh, French zoologist Cuvier was very sceptical of these experiments, and so nothing really happened for about 120-odd years or so. Then Hamilton Hartridge, who was a physiologist at Cambridge, published a, a paper suggesting that it was high-frequency sounds that the bats were using. And there was a, uh, a, a graduate student at Harvard called Donald Griffin who was working on bat migration. And he had some bats and he heard that uh, a scientist, a physicist uh, called G.W. Pierce had developed a microphone which could, which could detect ultrasonics. And so Griffin took his bats along to, uh, to Pierce's laboratory 
Um, they put them in front of the microphones, which are these little salt crystals that, that produced an electric current when they were vibrated by sound. And within perhaps a minute, all of a sudden, these, these little traces were coming out from the oscilloscope. You could hear the pulses because they were using a technique called heterodyning, which was developed uh, for, for radar. Uh, and so it must have been a fantastic eureka moment that within the space of a minute, this 130-year-old mystery had been solved that bats use ultrasound for navigating. And can you just explain what ultrasound is? So ultrasound, um, by convention, is anything above our normal range of hearing. Which is what? 18 kilohertz if you are young, female, and haven't been to too many nightclubs which I'm not sure really kind of applies to many of us here. Um, but uh, So it's, it's ultrasonics above the range of hearing. And what are bats get up to? Well, they produce very high-intensity ultrasonic pulses. What's uh, very high? Very high is up to about 200 kilohertz. Normally, uh, bats, they have a range of echolocation calls, but from about 18 kilohertz up to about 200 kilohertz, or 200,000 cycles per second. So it's it's much higher frequency than we can hear, much higher frequency than dogs and cats can hear as well. And this is key to their success as finding things, getting finding their prey and so on. Well, it allows them to to exploit nocturnal insects, which is a fairly unique uh, food supply. So flying nocturnal insects, because there's nothing really out there that that can exploit these. So it allows them to to to, to multiply and, uh, and and propagate and evolve and and occupy pretty much every continent on Earth apart from Antarctica. Thank you very much. Gareth Jones, can you explain, can we just talk a little bit more about high-frequency sounds and why we can't hear them? Right, okay. So, um, as Dean mentioned, our hearing is restricted to um, around about 18 to 20 kilohertz. Um, There's no real need for us to hear really high frequencies. Whereas if you're a bat, um, well, first of all, you're flying around at night. You need to work out where obstacles are. Critically, for many bats, you have to detect very, very small targets, things like tiny insects. To detect small targets, you have to produce very high-frequency sounds, frequencies with very, very short wavelengths. These are the Can only... you just explain a bit more what a high-frequency sound is? Um, what it consists of? The wave? How is the wave shaped? Okay, so um, if you just think of um, a series of peaks and troughs forming waves, if you think, think in terms of a stone being thrown into water, for instance, the, the waves that emanate from that stone going into the water. There are similar waves going on in air when we speak at the moment. So I'm talking to you. There are sound waves propagating through uh, the room. But these bats need to produce really, really high-frequency sounds. They need to do this because they need to get echoes from very small targets. <coughs> high, <coughs> high frequencies are really necessary to get these strong echoes back. So one of the reasons why bats use ultrasound is to get strong echoes from small targets. However, there, there, there are costs as well associated with producing these very high frequencies. All sound spreads spherically away from a sound source and um, it spreads um, according to the square of the distance from the source. So the sound attenuates very, very rapidly. Ultrasound, very high frequencies, these short wavelengths, are absorbed it's, it's absorbed by particles in the at atmosphere. So ultrasound not only um, falls away in intensity because of this so-called spherical spreading, which applies to all sound frequencies, it also is subject to atmospheric attenuation. So the really high frequencies do not travel very far. So the frequencies that bats use tend to be typically in the range between about 20 
and 60 kilohertz. So Still out of our hearing. Out of our hearing range. So there are a few bat species that echolocate. One that echolocates around about 8 kilohertz. Mm. We can hear it tick, tick, ticking as it flies in Mediterranean habitats, for instance. There's one bat species that goes as high as 212 kilohertz. But because of the need to use high frequencies to detect small targets and the costs of these sounds not travelling very, very far at high frequencies, there's this sort of window of ideal frequencies that bats tend to use. What do we need to know about the speed of sound to help us understand what bats are doing? Okay, so the speed of sound um, is really important. So bats really um, have to work out the positions of objects around them. And to do this, they can work out how far a target away is away from them by measuring the time delay between producing the sound and receiving the echo. So the speed of sound is pretty constant. Typically, it's around about 340 metres a second. It varies a little bit according to temperature, according to humidity. But it's this time delay that's critical in how a bat sort of translates a time delay into the distance an object is away. So a bat's making a very, I mean, an extraordinarily rapid mathematical calculation. The echo comes back. It has to work out the time it's taken to go and to come back. It's to work out, divide that by two, and then go in the direction. So it's moving very quickly inside its brain? Yes, I mean, the sort of neural processing that's going on must be happening very, very quickly. It's not just the distance of the target that the bat has to work out either. It also needs to work out where the bat, where the object is in the vertical plane and where it is in the horizontal plane. And it does it in the vertical plane by having a little structure in its ear called a tragus. And there are sort of interference patterns of sounds that are created by the tragus. And scientists have shown that if you tape down the tragus of a bat, the bat's ability to work out where um, a target is in the vertical plane diminishes. And then in the horizontal plane, the bat is using intensity differences um, from one year to the other year. So these, these, these three features, target range, the vertical position, and the azimuth, the horizontal position of the target, the bats have different mechanisms for working out these, uh, these positions. Thank you. Kate Jones, can we go on with what they can detect? So we, we know how they're doing it. We know the speed at which they're doing it. We're... We're still, uh, as I read from my notes here, it's quite a lot we, we, you don't know. But what you do know is the, the things they can detect. Can you just tell the listeners what they can pick up? Yeah, so, I mean, as Dean and Gareth have said, um, they they try to detect, localise and, and find objects. So they use that for navigation, but also eating prey. So a huge proportion of of bat species eat insects so they're trying to find these quite small insects in the pitch dark so they use frequency a range of different frequencies to find these insects so when a bat's starting to find insects they will start the series of pulses so these they're a bit like um tweets so it'll be like like in a search call so the bats will uh figure out where all these insects are and um, they're kind of searching around in space and then when they hone in on a the target they find them off they'll speed up 
the rate that they're making these pulses. So they get much more information about the environment. Why? Um, because they, the thing is moving away or it's moving down or it's taking evasive action. It needs a lot more information about where this object is. So it'll speed up its call rate. So it'll start going... And then it will end with a what's called a terminal buzz, which is like someone blowing a raspberry like this... <laughs> so it will try and f- it will find uh, the insect and catch it. So there's a, a, as Gareth said, there's a huge variation in types of calls and frequencies that they use, and it's all down to this problem with frequencies. Like frequencies don't high frequencies don't travel very far in air. So that if you want to see uh, quite far, you need a lower frequency. So think about um, elephant rumbles. So they can hear for miles because it's a low infrasonic call. But with high frequency, it doesn't travel very far at all. So it would be a few metres at most. So the the problem is you've got to uh, trade off between seeing far and uh, seeing in detail. You talked, you used the word seeing several times. <laughs> How does a bat see? Yeah, it's in the so dark. Uh, uh, and then it, just to, from from the notes that you give me, what they can they know that this is a very little insect, but they also know it's furry. They know they know they have an enormous amount of information about it before they attempt to eat it. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so how does this mass of information come in at that speed and when they're that small? Well, the wavelength of sound. So if the higher frequencies have got short wavelengths, so yeah. short peaks and troughs between the the different cycles. So. If you imagine like a wave coming towards you as I'm speaking to you, if you've got high wave, uh, high frequency, you've got these very short wavelengths. So if I uh, have this wave coming towards you, then the chances of me hitting a really tiny object or furry or an antennae are much higher because you've got such a high frequency. And so you get this bounce back of uh, all this fine detail. So it's like you're trying to see with sound with this really short wavelength of call. But, but the problem is you can't see very far. So evolu- in a, over cross evolutionary time, bats have tried to uh, optimise their calls for the environment that they're in and the prey that they eat. So, for example, bats which have high frequencies, they don't travel very far, so they make them really loud so that they can kind of get them across the air. So this means, as you said in your introduction, the bats are really loud. <laughs> so they're really, really loud. I mean, like, as loud as I, I mean, I said in my introduction, <laughs> you said in your notes. Would it would a bat sound if it were, if I could hear it now? Would it be as loud as a pneumatic drill? It, one well, little it, bat. It's um some one bat in um in South America has been recorded at 160 decibels. That's 20 decibels higher than a rock concert, and 15 decibels higher than our pain threshold. So this is just one bat. Yes. <laughs> so these. So are, how do they do that? that I mean, they. We'll have to move. Yeah. We're going to come. We are certainly going to come to that. So thank you very much for all that. <laughs> and that's you, Dean. How do they make these sounds? They make the sounds in the same way that we do. Um, so they have vocal cords. The only difference, really, is that bat vocal cords are they're they're much stronger and more robust than ours but they've got a couple of kind of special properties so if, if you imagine a the bat's vocal cords if you imagine a kettle drum uh, with a slit down the center and um so that you have two two vocal cords one either side and if you pull that 
that tight, that kettle drum, and, and the slit will then close. And what the bat does is it then compresses it to the air in its lungs, and it compresses it to the point almost to blood pressure. So the bat is almost switching off the blood supply to its lungs because the pressure is so high. What it then does is it then releases the vocal cords and that they contract under elastic energy. The vocal cords open and they start to vibrate. And because it's high tension at the beginning, it's very high frequency that comes out. So if, if you tune a guitar string, the, tight, the tighter it becomes, the higher the frequency. But as they relax under elastic recoil, the frequency then becomes lower. So, so bats produce this signal that starts off very high and ends up very low. So it's a sound. And but the other adapt the really interesting adaptation is they have special muscles that retention the uh, the vocal cords. Uh, they're about a hundred times faster than than human muscles. In fact, they're about a hundred times faster than the fastest mammalian muscles. You have to go to invertebrates or some snakes to have muscles which are are that fast, and they need to be that fast because these bats are producing signals 10 times a second. When they go, as Kate said, into approach and search phase, you can be up to 200 calls per second. So they have to retension these vocal cords 200 times in order to get the signals out. That must be that must be exhausting. So how do, do they get help from the, the rest of their tiny frames with well, fragile bones and all the rest of it? Uh, they do. I mean, essentially, they're, they're lucky because they get echolocation for free. As, as, as Kate said, this is incredibly loud. It's an enormous amount of energy that, that comes out. They're producing... 120, 140 decibels of calls, 10 times a second, 8 hours a night, enormous amounts of metabolic energy. But they get it for free because the, the lungs, the, the muscles that contract the lungs are coupled to the flight muscles. So as the bats raise their wings on the upstroke, uh, the, the muscles compress the lungs and the animal exhales and produces its echolocation call. So one wing, wing beat, one echolocation call. So they can couple the two mechanisms together. Gareth, this is an obvious question. I like asking obvious questions. Why don't they deafen themselves? <laughs> okay, there are a couple of ways that bats don't deafen themselves. A couple of mechanisms involved. Uh, one of them involves the middle ear muscles. So um, the little bones in the middle ear, um, I think it's the, uh, the hammer and the stirrup, essentially, have muscles attached to them. And when these muscles contract... Um, the bat um, essentially almost becomes deaf while it's calling. So um, one one of the really important things for bats as well is they the closer they get to targets, the more they have to shorten the call. So the, imagine you're getting closer and closer to an object. The sound is coming back faster and faster. So you really want to hear these faint, very, very faint echoes that are coming back. So um, you need to reactivate your hearing to, to hear these faint echoes from close objects. So you have a sort of send-receive system, a bit like occurs in radar, actually. So um, the sound is sent out, the middle ear muscles contract, the bats don't deafen themselves by these really, really intense sounds, and then they have a listening period that the echoes come back in. But as they come closer and closer to objects, um, the sounds have to get shorter and shorter, so that the outgoing sound, which is really, really intense, doesn't overlap with the very, very faint echo that's returning. So what do they do? Do they dis Did I read that they displace an eardrum or something? I think it's more to do with this, the, these muscles attaching to the, yeah. the, the, the tiny bones in, in the middle ear that is, is the mechanism by which this self-deafening um, is avoided. I mean, horseshoe bats do it in a different way. Um, and maybe we'll talk about that. Well, there are a thousand species. On. We haven't turned so it off about a thousand, right, but the horseshoe right. seem to be quite. 
Yes, I mean it's, it's quite. Uh, so they don't deafen themselves, and and they're mo- they're they're moving in on the. Can we go back to? Sing? It's not. I didn't. I didn't quite get it. What do you mean by see? You're all talking what they see. What do they see, and how do they see? Dean, you're going to tell well, us what they see. Um, if you if you sort of think about what vision really is, it's it, you generate a map inside your your auditory sorry your visual cortex I get the two mixed up now because they are essentially the same the visual cortex you generate a map of where everything is so you can reach out and you can touch something because you've seen it your touch map is the same it's a map if you touch something you know where that object is if you reach for a glass of water at night you you know where it is the auditory map is, is exactly the same so bats build up a map but rather than using vision or touch they they use their auditory senses they build up a picture of echo delays and how big objects are within their their auditory field, so they just generate a, a map picture inside their heads. Okay, so there's a really famous philosophical essay by Thomas Nagel called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And Nagel was essentially interested in you know, the question, can we ever get our heads inside the head of another human being? Um, but as an extreme example of trying to work out what it must be like to be something else, he chose a bat. He thought bats were really, really alien creatures. And um, I'm not sure we will ever, you know, be able to understand, picture the world as a bat sees it, but there are some things that we can get some ideas about. I imagine they're seeing the picture of the world in quite a sort of stroboscopic way, so they're getting these pulses coming back maybe ten times a second that builds up a picture of the world around them, perhaps in the way that we see stroboscopic light at a a disco or something similar as well. So I think we can get, you know, some sort of picture of how bats are seeing the world, but getting ourselves inside the heads of a bat and picturing exactly how they process things, how they see textural detail and everything, that's a real challenge. Kate, Kate Jones, so we can't hear bats. Um, Are some of their prey in a better in a better uh, position than we are as this as this stealth bomber homes in <laughs> are they thinking whoops now can we take avoiding action well b- bats evolved around uh, 60 to 95 million years ago and so they evolved later than a lot of the prey that they they eat so insects evolved much earlier so you know one of the reasons for their massive success in the mammalian kingdom is that they've tapped in to unsuspecting prey so the vast majority of of prey that bats eat don't hear them and they sneak up and and do a great job but there are some a great job (laughs) (laughs) not if you're an insect well you know but i'm a bat expert you're you're not a great job are you really (laughs) no you're not (laughs) much at dinner you're a midnight snack (laughs) um so there are a few insects that have develop these anti-bat devices so um, uh, a lot of these are kind of bat detecting ears so uh, um, ear hearing in insects has evolved in at least six different orders of insects and also uh, within uh, butterflies and moths lepidoptera it's also evolved independently around six times so it's a really um good adaptation to listening for bats and we think for for some in, for some insect groups it, it was a kind of co-opted affair so that they could they could hear uh, movement anyway or they hear noises anyway in some of these organs on the on their body but um in lepidoptera we think they've evolved these bat hearing ears 
And they take a boarding action. The tiger, can you tell us about the tiger moths, some sort of anti-aircraft? Yeah, yeah. So, so, <laughs> so some bats when they when they hear these um, ultrasonic calls, they're very sensitive to particular types of calls. So I talked about that search phase call before. So if a, if a moth with these ears hears a search phase call, they might, they might not be that bothered because the bat's far away; it hasn't seen them yet. But when it starts to speed up, they start panicking and then think, OK, I've got to take avoided, avoid a, you know, defensive action. So they can manoeuvre, they're really manoeuvrable, so they can drop out the sky or, or take uh, different turns and twists so they behave really erratically so that the, the bats don't see them. And then some moths have even evolved this ability, as you said, this tiger moth, to make clicks. So <laughs> they are actually producing sound and um, we we don't exactly know uh, what the uh, function of this is, but the tiger moths are also uh, poisonous so that the bats can't eat them. So it could be a warning or it could be that it's a startle response. So for naive bats, like, wow, what's this? You know, I can't eat that. Or it could be that they're jamming, they're jamming them. So they get really confused. <laughs> so like, I, I don't I know where it. this thing is. I don't I know what it's doing. I love the vocabulary on this. How on earth do you distinguish a naive bat? You, ten naive bats. <laughs> Are you naive? Go, go, go to the back of the cane. <laughs> Just saying. Sorry, finish off. No, uh, but then uh, bats have got all these countermeasures. So it's like an arms race. So like, oh, like, oh. So bats have got... Um, uh, there's some evidence that bats can change their frequencies so that they go much higher. And we've talked about problems of high frequency calls that they don't travel very far but some have gone higher to avoid moths hearing them or lower so it, it's all they go into stealth mode and don't they don't make echolocation calls it's all action out there isn't it it's really? crazy yeah so if you're in texas and 20 million come out of a cave at the same time isn't it? <laughs> anyway never mind let's not well we must think about it but it's very difficult to think about really you wanted to get in dean well i was just going to say that this is actually a nice experiment that you can do at home is you can demonstrate your your moth defense mechanisms <laughs> and all you need is a bunch of keys uh, keys produce a lot of ultrasound when you jangle them uh, and you, if you have a, an outside light that you have moths gathering around, particularly at this time of year, it works really well, is, is you sneak up on your moth with your bunch of keys uh, very, very carefully. And then you take out your keys and you jangle them very violently. And what you'll see the moth doing is it will do a whole series of loops and dives. It might fly off in the opposite direction. And sometimes they even just drop to the ground and hide up in the grass. Because as far as they're concerned, they've got very simple ears, is those keys produce enough ultrasound they sound just like a bat crikey it's time to get out of here so you can actually see this this co-evolutionary arms race in action at home as we have a moth invasion of london i can see quite a few people reaching for their keys at the moment, <laughs> rushing upstairs to obviously if, if moths are not your thing and you're scared just just take a bunch of keys you'll be fine yeah uh, so it's not just uh, insects that can hear bats or respond to this acoustic uh, attack but plants not can hear bats but they also respond to bats acoustic calls so um, some bats pollinate and um, uh, spread seeds of lots of different plants are important pollinators and some plants can uh, have adapted their leaves to be a parabolic dish so that they can advertise really to bats to say come here there's there's a free snack and you can pollinate my plant as well so that it's like a bat beacon which i think is absolutely incredible well we ought to swerve off slightly to dolphins and ecologization but this is this is 
and this is so intense. I'd rather stay here for a while if you don't mind. Can we, Gareth, can you tell us about the horseshoe bat? Yeah, horseshoe bats are amazing. I mean, I'm an evolutionary biologist. I'm interested in adaptation. And for me, the echolocation calls of horseshoe bats are one of the best examples of adaptation out there. So essentially, bats with echolocation... Sorry, when you say adaptation, we've been told they've been going for about 90 million years. So they've adapted over that long time or just in the last 50 million or what? We don't know. Um, the, 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 well, the, the fossil record of bats is not great. There's a big argument about, um, you know, whether the first fossil bats were capable of echolocation or not. It's, it's one of the big sort of questions in echolocation research at the moment. But um, there have almost certainly been evolutionary modifications over time of the calls. OK, back to the horseshoe bat. So the horseshoe bat call. The horseshoe bat call lasts about... 50 milliseconds, 50 thousandths of a second. It's absolutely pure tone core. doesn't wa- waver in frequency at all. This gives... The, so echolocation has to work in three ways. First of all, you have to uh, detect a target. You have to then localise the target, and then you uh, can classify the target. These long, long calls are very, very good um, at detecting targets. They're also very good at classifying targets. So... Something like a mosquito might be fly, flapping its wings at, say, f- several hundred times per second. A beetle might be flapping its wings perhaps four times a second. So from the little acoustic glints, as we call them, that come back during these long calls, these bats can tell a mosquito from a beetle, they can classify uh, prey types, and they can choose their dinner accordingly. Uh, that's very, very smart. Not only do they have these abil- this ability to classify targets, they also put little sweeps at the end of the call, and this allows them to localise targets as well. They also do something remarkable called Doppler shift compensation. So these very long, constant frequency calls are very susceptible to Doppler shifts. So the classic example of Doppler shifts is when you're standing on a road in central London and an ambulance comes towards you, um, the sound waves get compressed, the frequency goes up. As the ambulance moves away, the sound waves stretch out and the frequency goes down. These long calls are very, very susceptible to Doppler shifts. So what the horseshoe bats are doing is they lower the frequency of the call from call to call in relation to the speed that they're flying, so they're compensating for the Doppler shifts incurred by their flight speed. This means that the call they send out and the echo that they receive are on different frequencies. So they don't have this problem of self-deafening. They're separating the pulse and the echo in frequency rather than in time. So horseshoe bats are amazing in that they can produce these calls that are adapted for all these functions of echolocation, detection, classification, localization, and they can do it by this remarkable Doppler shift compensation. It's a fantastic example of adaptation. The way you're talking, I think we're going to take over quite soon. Don't you? <laughs> Kate, Kate, can we um, can we distinguish bats by the sound they make? I mean, you talk of distress calls, you talk of, uh, let's put it this, a mother knowing a child and that sort of thing. So you can distinguish them in those ways. Yeah, so um, we've over the over the last few years we've developed um, lots of uh, technology sensors to hear bats, so that you know they're above most of them are above our frequency. So we have these little devices which we can now use to transform that sound down, lower it in frequency, so we can hear. So um, one of the ways that um, 
we try to tell species apart, like humans try to tell species apart, is by listening to these calls on these sensors. And um, bats' calls are are really different from bird calls. So bird calls are like, uh, here I am, I look fantastic, don't you want to come and mate with me? That is, that's a kind of, you know, a call that a bird makes or get off my territory. And bat calls are very functional. So they're how to find their way around so that they uh, can be very variable. They're very tricky. They, they change, they have different um, accents across space, across uh, uh, geographic space. And they've also got um, differences in sexes so that it's very difficult to tell um, a, a species from its call. Dean Waters, um, some bats don't use echolocation. Oh, uh, no, there's basically there's two groups. or two uh, uh, Bats are, are in the order Chiroptera, uh, which means chiro meaning hand, and terra meaning wing, as in your chiropractor, and terra as in pterosaurs. So we have, to, we have two suborders. We have the micro Chiroptera, or the small hand wings, and the mega Chiroptera, which are the big hand wings. And um, the, we, uh, the, the, the big ones, the, the, the mega Chiroptera, uh, don't echolocate or don't there's only there's one group that echolocates which is the uh the rosettus which are, are some cave egyptian fruit bats they live in caves and they, they produce a sort of tongue click that goes in. um but the microcoptera um they they all echolocate or all can echolocate but some of them choose not to because these are the stealth bats so these are the ones that are overcoming the uh the insect defense mechanisms so because insects a lot of insects can hear bats is if you switch off your echolocation or make it very very low intensity at the, at the very end is your insect can't detect you so so you can then sort of, you can you can catch you can listen by passive hearing so some bats have got really big ears that just listen to the passive sounds that the insects are making either in flight or if they're crawling around um, on the ground so that they can listen rather than echolocate and that then doesn't alert its prey Gareth, Gareth Jones, which evolved first, flight or echolocation? Right, the chicken and egg question. <laughs> uh, this, again, is not resolved at the moment. So my feeling is likely that echolocation evolved before flight, partly because if you're flying around at night time, you need echolocation to find out where objects are. Um, also, we've forgotten the business. It's, it's so as not to bump into things either. Yes, that's yeah. right. That's right. So, so um, yes, obstacle avoidance is really, really important. So there, there, there is a debate going on. So there is a fossil bat, um, Onychonycteris, it's called, and it dates to around about 53 million years ago. And people have looked at the structure of the cochlea in the year um, of, of, of this fossil and have argued that actually the structure of the cochlea suggests that it did not echolocate. Therefore, flight evolved before echolocation. However, scientists have also looked at other bones um, near the hyoid apparatus um, in the throat. And some of these bones are characteristic of echolocating bats. So they've argued, well, actually this bat did echolocate after all. It's a problem. This is a pancake fossil. It's really flat so the structures can get distorted in, in it. Um, my, my, my feeling is probably echolocation first, but also, as Dean mentioned earlier, there is this coupling between flapping the wings and producing the sound, so the bats can essentially produce echolocation sounds for cheap, at, at no cost when they're flying. 
No energy cost. No energy cost. So this could mean that, you know, there's strong selective pressure for flight and air location to evolve in tandem together at the same time. There's also a really fascinating discovery that happened last year. People have found um, a, a pygmy dormouse in Vietnam that produces sounds very much like the echolocation calls of bats. It's got ears very much like echolocating bats. The scientists have not conclusively shown that it echolocates but the structure of the calls, the structure of the years suggests this could be um, a terrestrial echolocating species it's not related to bats, not an ancestor, but it does show that you know echolocation can be effective on the ground So uh, I'd like to come in with there is a bit of controversy around this mega mega bat and microbat taxonomy so that Dean was saying and, and Gareth has been talking about the evolution of echolocation so with the megabats they haven't got this ability to echolocate and with microbats they do have it but new um, genetic evidence and this is a little bit controversial but um, new genetic evidence has shown that the the megabats are firmly within the evolutionary tree of the microbats so there isn't such a thing as megabats and microbats they're all bats which has got a fascinating implication for the evolution of echolocation so it's either evolved once at the base of this group and then lost in the megabats or it's evolved independently twice (laughs) so we those are really open questions so it's absolutely uh, a fascinating area that you know not all chiroptologists agree on (laughs) well i think i'm going Going back to the evolution of echolocation, is, is, is possibly evolved even more than twice. If you look at where the horseshoe bats now are, are placed with, with the megabats, and you also have this uh, Crasionictris thonglongii, which is a fantastically long name for the world's smallest bat, um, that's also within that group as well, and that has a different type of echolocation. So you're actually looking at echolocation styles or, or, or uh, different types of calls arrangements like the horseshoe bats evolving multiple times within this lineage. You would like to that? Well, I, I think I would just add that I think the uh, my understanding is the evidence at the moment is is favouring the single origin and then loss in the mega corruptions. Partly because people have looked at the developmental history of um, of, of ear structures in these animals, and they find similar developmental patterns in the non-echolocating bats to those in echolocating bats. And the argument has been made that this is support for a single origin and then subsequent loss, which is actually the most parsimonious, the most likely explanation in my mind. I think echolocation is such a sophisticated adaptation, especially in the way bats use it, that multiple origins is perhaps unlikely. Is, Kate, is, are bats having an effect on the way insects are developing? Are they, they on the lookout over 60, 70 million years and they've developed, they have evolved to meet the threat absolutely have you know when you see this this bat moth uh, co- evolution as a, a really good example of a, of a predator prey arms race so it's it's usually held up as a, a really interesting example of how evolution over time has adapted the moths to the presence of bats so even you know not just the ears but behavioral adaptations so some moths have become a bit more diurnal because they're trying to avoid bats or they try to shift different seasons so they come out before the bats come out of hibernation or after the bats have gone back into hibernation so i think there's a really incredible um uh, kind of arms race going on and adaptations back and forth dean what what areas 
in this research has been quite a lot, obviously, <coughs> since you got going three or four decades ago. And you, you think are, A, not known, and, and, and rather more worryingly, perhaps even not knowable. Well, I think there's, the big question for me is there's a big mismatch between these fantastically elegant behavioural experiments that you can do on bats where you can sit a bat on a platform, you can train it to listen to two different loudspeakers and you, you gradually reduce the differences between the two calls you're producing until the bat can't tell one or the other from one from the other. So, And then they'll walk towards the loudspeaker they think it's producing a, a call which is slightly later or has a slightly different structure. So they're telling us they can resolve incredible detail but from what we understand about the physiology, the way that, that animals process auditory information, we know that's not possible. They shouldn't be able to do the things that but, they can. But they do. But they do. So, so there's two things. Either there's something extra in the behavioural experiments that we don't understand. The bats are listening to different cues, and bats are very clever. So we might be training them to listen to the different things. So what we interpret the experiment as doing, the bats may not. Or there's something extra in the physiology that we don't yet understand. I suspect it's they're doing something in the physiology that we don't understand what it is yet. Are we taking that on? Are we taking people like you taking that on, or your your fellow academics in different disciplines, and saying, okay, we will try to use this or find this or how it applies to other things, including ourselves? Right. Um, so, I mean, there's a huge amount of research in sonar and radar, and. The signals derived by sonar and radar engineers resemble those of bats very, very closely, except bats evolved them over 50 million years ago, probably. Are bats ahead in this race between radar and bats? Um, I think, given their miniature size, their ability to fly around very quickly, their adaptations have not necessarily... There are groups in America trying to do biomimetic studies to try and mimic um, echolocating bats but I think the bats are remarkable in these adaptations yeah. What would you really like to know about bats before we end this programme? Uh, I'm really interested in how to track bats um, over time and space so to understand their populations and their conservation and I am frustrated by the fact of how little we know about echolocation calls uh, and, and we need to build up better libraries in our understanding of calls to be able to build better methods to uh, identify bat, individual bats. So more to come back in a few years' time with more, more bat talk. I'm very sorry that we didn't get round to dolphins and toothed whales, but that's another time, another another programme. Next week, we'll discuss the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848 and how it left Mexico with half its territory. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks to Kate Jones, Gareth Jones and Dean Waters. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. <laughs> So well, I mean, going back to the sort of mega micro thing is, is that it's a great introduction to the Yanga Coroptera, Yintero Coroptera <laughs> argument. Whatever because those it names le- are. Whatever those names are. Because it leads very neatly into, into understanding about how we w- traditionally classified organisms based on their morphology, uh, life history strategies versus the molecular genetics. The molecular genetics always throws some spanners into the works. I mean, obviously, the molecular genetics is is not without problems and faults and interpretations, but... One question I didn't ask uh, is how can they tell their sound? 20 million come bats out of the cave in Texas. How can bat number one tell it, distinguish itself from bat number 1900... Anyway, how can they distinguish their own particular sound? Extraordinary. I've been to to Bracken Cave in Texas. There's 20 million Mexican free-tailed bats that, that come out. 
and if you try and make a recording it's just noise that you can't even make out individual calls it is extraordinary but bats have this sort of temporal expectation so when they produce a call they have an expectation window when that call's going to come back so they can change the gain in their auditory system so they can ignore anything until they get to the window where they're expecting that signal to come back and at that point they will then ramp up the gain and listen for their own 20 million times. yeah that is a bit crazy i mean yeah. can so you we, work out we, how they manage to do it we, well we think also that they recognize their own calls and that's really another area which is incredibly interesting that we don't know anything about we think that they can recognize their own voice i can recognize my own voice so can you so why can't bats do that we think they probably can so like infant bats are left in this bracken cave in a big nursery in a little crash well a big crash and uh, the bat mums go back and um, feed and then come back and find their own pup so they can find their own pup in thousands of pups so at the beginning of this research we thought that was totally impossible that they'd find their own pup and we thought that they were aloe aloe feeding they were aloe nursing so they were just nursing any pup that was there and everybody was very excited about this whole idea of aloe nursing that was crazy idea you know how did that evolve but actually they recognize their own pup in in a whole bunch of pups a mass of pups they can do it i think that's incredible it is isn't it yeah. I mean, for me, the, some of the big, exciting, well, two really exciting areas to explore in echolocation research at the moment are, one, the use of little miniature devices that are being fit, fitted to bats. So you can put these tiny tags on bats, work out where they are from their GPS coordinates, but also record their echolocation calls. So this is giving us an unprecedented view of echolocation behaviour in the wild on these tiny animals. Uh, you get the tags back, you can download their echolocation calls as they fly around and the other area that's really exciting for me is is molecular genetics and um what is it that what are the genes involved that make bats give bats this amazing ability to echolocate and there are some amazing examples of convergent evolution at the gene level so whales and dolphins have evolved um hearing genes um that have undergone similar mutations to those in bats to cope with dealing with high-frequency echolocation calls. So I think there are some really exciting new discoveries awaiting us in the world of genetics. I I think we we kind of have this idea that that echolocation somehow is is, is difficult. I mean, flight, we know, has evolved multiple times. Lots of animals climb up trees and chuck themselves out and glide. So the evolution to powered flight is probably not that difficult. But somehow the idea that, that, that echolocation is this sort of holy grail but but we all echolocate to some extent. We we perceive the space around us by the reflection of our own echoes. So if you put somebody into an anechoic chamber that absorbs all sound around them, there's a fantastic big one down at Southampton University, the sort of size of it, almost a concert hall. Really disorientating experience because everything, even the rustling of your clothing, you can't pick up the echo. So you have no idea how big the space is. Whereas you walk down a corridor, you pick up the sounds of your own, your feet, your, clo- your clothes rustling you know how big that space is. So all human beings will, will echolocate to some extent. It's just kind of the activity about doing it actively and, do, and processing it really quickly. For me, um, the really exciting research is on... I don't disagree with Gareth, but I think it's on about how we interpret these echoes. So bats are leaking information about themselves into the environment all the time. And we can use that to monitor their populations so that uh, we can start to build up, uh, you know new technologies and new sensors so that they can go through all these recordings and pull out 
different species of bats tell tell if there's a bat there and what species it is and it also is a way of really engaging with the public as well because you can give them these detectors and then the whole sky becomes alive with bats because you can't hear them normally and then you get these detectors and then it's a an amazing experience for people they just flying over their heads and they didn't recognize didn't notice and it's like a whole new world of uh, ecology and nature and conservation that they just didn't know about and i think that's really powerful for me yeah just some more points really about these echolocation humans because it is remarkable and people have recently analyzed the sound clicks that echolocating humans make so several uh, visually impaired people Echolocate. There's some very famous people, a guy called Daniel Kish in, uh, the, the, in, in, in America, who rides bikes um, by using echolocation, etc. And the clicks that these humans are producing are around about three milliseconds long, which is about the same duration as uh, the calls of bats sometimes. They're much lower in frequency, so they typically have most energy between two and four kilohertz. But they can still be used to build up um, a remarkable picture of the surroundings. But the humans using these clicks are actually using the visual cortex in the brain, which we use for understanding the world by sight, to process the echoes. In the bats, it's the auditory cortex that's become really, really specialised for processing echoes. So there are these quite remarkable differences between how humans are doing it and how bats are doing it. But echolocating humans, amazing. <laughs> And this is being developed by, by, by people being making things, turning actually basically cutting to the chase, turning them into bats, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, sort of going back to, to Thomas Nagel's essay, "What Is It Like to Be a Bat?" So, so there's a, there's a couple of things you can do. Um, you can you can use sonar technology. I mean, we all use sonar technology almost now. Every car has got reversing alarms on it. Um, as you you're going towards an object, your your alarm will go beep 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 beep. beep gets gets sort of louder and faster so that's just mapping um distance onto sound frequency uh you can develop devices for helping people with visual impairments that that uh, many years ago we, we helped develop a, a a cane which sent out ultrasonic pulses picked up those pulses and relayed those to a little uh vibrating button on the handle that that would vibrate faster the closer you got to objects but also uh we're looking at ways of of taking radar imagery um, rather than seeing it visually, is mapping that onto your, your auditory space so that this idea about visual maps and auditory maps is rather than having a radar image, which is on a screen, is you take that radar signals and you turn it into sonar and you listen in three-dimensional virtual audio space to where objects are around you. So it's incredibly versatile. We can learn an awful lot from, from how bats use echolocation. Well, the producer's uh, straining at the bit to come in and give us some information. It's for you to your coffee. Coffee, please. Coffee, please. Lovely coffee. Thank you. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Don't you hate that when you can't turn off your podcast quickly enough and then someone like me pops up? Anyway, I'm really glad you're still listening. I'm Matthew Price from the Beyond Today podcast, and we've just put a box set series into our feed. It's about a group of teenagers who lost half their mates, young men who survived the deadliest foot patrol of the British Army's war in Afghanistan. Nobody can measure how broken some of these boys are. Mentally. I don't think anybody really understands the internal battle that continues. It's been ten years now 
most of us have forgotten. But the soldiers of Nine Platoon haven't. You can find our special series, Deadliest Day, by searching for Beyond Today on BBC Sounds.